bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So a few years ago on the Hunter Conservationist Podcast, Curtis and I visited Dr. Ryan Brook at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. Uh, Dr. Brook is really riveting uh, podcast that we did a couple of years ago. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, I would go uh, back into the archives and find that one. But the leading story um, this month in Canada is about invasive wild pigs. And for the first time in Canada's history, invasive wild pigs have now expanded uh, into the first national park, Elk Island National Park in Alberta has confirmed that they have invasive wild pigs now. Um, apparently, this uh, Elk Island National Park, I've never been there, uh, is a fully fenced national park about 40 kilometers east of Edmonton. So somehow, invasive wild pigs have got in, um, are coming and going, and uh are potentially going to be a serious ecological problem in the national park. Uh, Dr. Brooke said uh, recently in a, in a news story that invasive wild pigs, he said they are the single most successful invasive large mammal on the planet. So they eat freaking near everything, ground besting, ner- uh, ground, ground, ground nesting nerds, um, ground nesting birds and nerds too, um, eggs, uh, the, the nestlings, they eat small mammals, amphibians, uh, and they've been known to predate on uh, fawn deer. Uh, they find them uh, in the spring of the year when they're like laying down, hiding uh, from predators, and these pigs just cruise around and pick them up and and eat them. Uh, Fruits, seeds, nuts, stems, roots, bulbs, tubers, they wreak havoc in uh, uh, agricultural areas. They wreak havoc in riparian habitats, like, you know, literally like tearing the soil apart. In 2007, a study out of the U.S. said that um, invasive wild pigs down there cost about $2 billion a year in annual damage and some research that was done on invasive wild pigs in the states said that uh, if a pig population is in an area, living in an area, the streams in that area are forty to- have forty times the E. coli bacteria in the streams than in watersheds without invasive wild pigs. Uh, so a wild pig is essentially any pig that has escaped captivity. Um, either escaped on their own or uh, intentionally released, which is uh, a problem uh, that does occur in North America. So they can be feral domestic pigs, they can be the Eurasian wild boar, uh, and they can be hybrids between the Eurasian wild boar and different types of uh, domestic pigs. Uh, Part of the problem with them is from an invasive species perspective, um, they're sexually ma- females are sexually mature at six months of age, and they can have two litters per year of up to 10 piglets each. So every six-month-old female can be bearing 20 piglets a year. So they're able to rapidly expand their population almost on an exponential 
uh, number. Uh, so in Canada, Dr. Brook, uh, I believe, estimates that invasive wild pigs are somewhere, if I recall correctly, in the neighborhood of 800,000 to a million square kilometers, mostly in Saskatchewan, more so in Alberta, and then they're slowly starting to show up in British Columbia now as well uh, and spreading somewhat east uh, towards Ontario and Quebec as well, that, that direction in Canada. It's a huge problem. Uh, now they're showing up in the national parks. Uh, it's not necessarily that they're more of a problem in the national parks. It's just they're a problem in any part of the landscape in Canada, whether it's natural or agriculture. Um, these things are, are uh, yeah, like Dr. Brooks said, um, he said, if you got a committee together to design, this is what he said on our podcast, if you got a committee together to design the worst conceivable invasive mammal that anybody could conceive, he said the committee would come up with the invasive wild pig. So in Ontario, uh, the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters recently released a statement uh, that the province of Alberta, ha- or sorry, the province of Ontario has finalized uh, its strategy to address the threat of invasive wild pigs in Ontario. Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters have been uh, helping with that. And so in Ontario, wild pigs have now been listed under the Invasive Species Act, the Provincial Invasive Species Act in Ontario. They are now a restricted invasive species. So that means that no one is permitted to allow a pig to be released into the wild in Ontario. And you're also prohibited to hunt or trap wild pigs. So this is a huge conundrum in the hunting community that uh, a lot of hunters think that, uh, well, we'll just, we'll just go out and hunt uh, these wild pigs. And if there's no limits on it, we'll just like get rid of them all. But as Dr. Book explains in our podcast, um, that hunting is actually worldwide is one of the problems causing these invasive wild pigs to expand their distribution across the landscape. Once the wild pigs know they're being hunted, um, been pressured a couple of times, they can fragment, they move farther away from, from people, and uh, they tend to shift towards nocturnal habitats, and they st- tend to start using habitats like riparian areas and agriculture lands where they get into really thick stuff during the day, and they're almost impossible to find. So... Worldwide hunting has been identified as being one of the problems in spreading invasive wild pigs. So the province in Ontario has prohibited hunting and trapping of wild pigs. What they are encouraging people to do is if hunters do see them on trail cameras or whatever, they have a whole system in place of reporting that. And then they have a response plan in Ontario that's going to use um, like professional sharpshooters and trapping. One of the concepts are when they go after wild pigs, they want to get the entire group. Um, they don't want to just get one or two, which is typically what hunters do, and then cause the rest of the rest of the ones in the group, which is called a sounder, to kind of fragment across the landscape. 
the ideal control strategy for invasive wild pigs is to get them all at one shot and that's generally what it takes um, to, to get their numbers down on the landscape and that requires experts uh, being involved so um, pretty progressive um, steps by the province in Ontario and by the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters by uh, continuing to advance um, that new strategy in the province uh, because, you know, based solely on the protection of the natural environment in Ontario. Grizzly bears are back in the news in Canada in uh, uh, mid-October. There was a person uh, out hiking or hunting or something west of Whitehorse in the Yukon was uh, attacked. I uh, don't know about the seriousness of the attacks. I do know from the stories I've read it wasn't a fatal attack. And then there was a bunch of uh, notices and warnings and stuff of residents of Whitehorse to kind of avoid that area and to be extra cautious uh, of a grizzly bear that was recently uh, involved in an altercation with a, with a person. In late September... In the Kananaskis area of Alberta, there was another attack of a grizzly bear on a person ran into, I think this is the one the person might have been grouse hunting, uh, and bumped into a sow with cubs and was attacked. Uh, Non-life-threatening injuries from what I gather from the stories, but Alberta has had, I think this is the fourth uh, bear attack in Alberta, and I believe there was two um, two fatalities this year in Alberta, so um, really sad situation uh, in the Yukon and in Alberta this year. On the same lines, uh, in British Columbia in late September, a grizzly bear was shot and discovered. It wasn't reported by, by whoever shot it. Uh, it was found by someone else uh, north of the community of Elkford, British Columbia, which is kind of in the southeastern corner of the Rocky Mountains of British Columbia, they found a grizzly bear that had been shot and left, maybe in an altercation with a hunter. And then just recently in early October near Edson, Alberta, um, a sow grizzly bear that was actually known to have uh, a couple of uh, older cubs uh, was found shot uh, and left in a, I think in a logging block or something in in Alberta, Alberta. Uh, so grizzly bears continue to be a problem this year in Canada and in, in the fall. And you know, these stories about grizzly bears, these two about grizzly bears being shot um, during the hunting season in the fall, uh, whether or not they were by hunters, whether they were in confrontations where a hunter was protecting themselves, uh, don't know because they weren't reported and it's just left up to conservation officers to try to piece together um, evidence from from the scene to try to ascertain what happened. They're asking people if they know anything to come forward. One of the things I think that is a problem with hunters being confronted by grizzly bears and having to protect themselves, um, you know, by fatally shooting a bear uh, in self-defense is the backlash from the public on an individual that has to protect them live 
protect their life in a confrontation like that is pretty serious. Uh, I actually saw it uh, close to where I live a few years ago. A, a person I know was attacked by a grizzly bear and his hunting partner ended up shooting uh, the bear when it was on on top of this person. And the backlash that this person undertook, um, he was a taxidermist as well. And so people were, you know, doing the whole, well, it's karma and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It was just brutal, like horrific and and we've seen this type of thing with trophy hunters, uh, whether they're they're uh, you know leopards or lions or whatever. Just you know somebody gets uh, becomes a target of an anti hunting campaign, and people get death threats, and you know, and people find out where you live, and your kids go to school, and all this kind of stuff. And I I can't help but wonder if this doesn't play a role. In these grizzly bears that have been shot and left, maybe in a hunting confrontation, because the person is, you know, basically like, I do not want my name to be known. Um, they may have been completely in the right, like not a poaching scenario, but the risk to that person and their family and their jobs and everything of of being a target of one of these global hate campaigns. Uh, I couldn't blame some people of basically saying, sorry that this happened, but I'm not willing to um, have my name, you know, leaked out there and, and have my life ruined or my family's life ruined because of, uh, you know, what happened in self-defense. So, you know, there there are avenues in all the provinces for somebody to phone up and anonymously report that you know they had a confrontation grizzly bear shot and this is where it is explain the situation and then and then you know do it anonymously uh that's probably better um, than at least officials have a statement you know of what happened they can't verify it that's the only that's the only problem uh with that uh so maybe Maybe conservation officer services across Canada need to be looking at a system that is more secure and private and confidential for somebody that ends up having to shoot a bear in self-defense so that they can report with no risk of their name being released to the media if they do not want their name released kind of like a like a whatever a secret witness or something you know in a in a big crime case or something but as it is now you know the the basic system in Canada is there's you know 1-800 numbers to report wildlife infractions and the first thing you would do is you know phone that number uh here in British Columbia anyways that hotline is manned by by uh uh, contractors. So the first person to be hearing your report and your name is a person that is not a government employee. Uh, that's how I understand the system works. And, you know, right from the get go, the person reporting it could have some uncertainty about how well the person receiving the report is going to protect their identity. So, that lack of trust, I guess, might lead people to not even reporting these at all. So maybe there's some 
adjustments to the reporting system to take into consideration that somebody that protected was protecting their life in a grizzly bear confrontation may not be reporting it because they literally might actually be fearing for their life if they report it and their name is leaked. Uh, I talked about a story uh, earlier this year about um, the Douglas Lake Ranch in British Columbia where uh, the owner of this um, big ranch uh, called the Douglas Lake Cattle Company, massive, massive piece of private land is owned by U.S. billionaire Stan uh, Kroenke. Uh, he owns some um, professional sports teams, the NHL Colorado Avalanche, the NFL's Los Angeles Rams, um, so to speak, billionaire. And there is this uh, big court case over um, a public road onto the Douglas Lake Cattle Company where members of the public would drive onto the road and then go fishing on uh, a couple of the lakes that are there, Stony and Mini Lakes. And then the public road was gated for years. Uh, nothing was ever done by the government to allow the public to use this public easement uh, to get to the lakes. So a little club, a little fish and game club in the Nicola uh, Valley called the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club um, took it upon themselves to take the Douglas Lake Cattle Company to court. Uh, they won and it was deemed that the road was public access and the public was allowed to um, use the road so the gates had to come down and they could go fishing on these public lakes. The Douglas Lake Cattle Company appealed. Uh, it went to the BC Appeal Court that ruled earlier this year that the Douglas Lake Cattle Company had the right to block the public from accessing the lakes. What the story was as how I understand it, is the lakes were artificially dammed by the Douglas Lake Cattle Company and it raised the level of the lakes. So they flooded back towards the public road. So you drove in on the public road, there's the shore of the lake, you could put your boat in it, not trespass, and go fish on the public lake because you can't own a water body in British Columbia. It can be on or pass through private property, but the private landowner does not own from the high water mark uh, uh, down uh, to, to the water, to the water, own the water itself. In this case, in the appeal, it was found that the land underneath the lake to the previous natural shoreline of the lake was historically the private land of the Douglas Lake Cattle Company. So people were actually trespassing over top of the private land when they put their boats into the lake. And so the BC Appeal Court overturned the ruling and the Douglas Lake Cattle Company was allowed to block the public from accessing these lakes. The Douglas Lake Cattle Company in turn has filed a lawsuit against the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club to recover its legal fees um, for appealing uh, the, the ruling. It's about, I think I read, $44,000 that this little fish and game club uh, is being asked to pay back um, the U.S. billionaire for their legal costs. 
Forbes magazine estimated that uh, Stan Kroenke's uh, net worth was $8.5 billion U.S., so essentially the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club. Um, so they, they appealed this to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, the BC Appeal Court's ruling, and the BC or the Supreme Court of Canada um, denied hearing the Nicola Valley uh, Fish and Game Club's appeal um, that the BC Appeal Court didn't make a fair ruling. So they basically kicked it out, and the decision that the Douglas Lake Cattle Company is allowed to block the public of BC uh, or Canada from accessing this public lake stands. So so the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club is most likely going to, as you know, nonprofit society is going to probably have to file for bankruptcy um, and to get out from underneath of having to pay these legal fees. I also read that it's possible that the government of BC, who did not stand up for its citizens when the public road was actually gated, may actually turn around and pass on its legal fees to the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club for its involvement in um, these court cases as well. So, um, yeah, the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club probably said it's easier just to file for bankruptcy um, than to try to fundraise to pay back um, two of the wealthiest um, entities in the province of British Columbia, um, Port Little Fish and Game Club. So... A spokesperson for the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club basically said, you know, in the big picture, the real threat here to the public is, is, uh, and I'll read this out, now a landowner, through acquiring a provincial water license, can flood his own private land, therefore blocking public access to the public lake for the rest of time. And they basically get public land or lakes for free. And the people of BC will be locked out forever. So precedent setting in a way, um, but also for the people that live in and around the Nicola Valley, um, the loss of access to two small lakes. It was a David and Goliath case, um, which has turned out that the big rich guy won, and the public cannot get to public lakes anymore. Over in New Brunswick, um, there's some communities there that have problems, um, specifically the community of St. Andrews, which has a problem with urban deer. Uh, they become a nuisance, uh, causing damage, car accidents, you know, all that stuff that uh, urban deer um, cause nowadays. And so recently, the government of New Brunswick announced a new program where when they issue or undertake calls of these nuisance deer in the community of St. Andrews, that all of the, f- the meat from the harvested deer will go to the local food banks. Uh, the province of New Brunswick has estimated that about 450 kilograms of wild venison will go to people in need uh, each year under this program, just in the community of St. Andrews. Uh, St. Andrews Mayor Brad Henderson uh, was quoted in in a newspaper article that I read that the program uh, is something his town has been looking at for two years 
as part of the solution for dealing with the overpopulation of deer in their community. Pretty cool story. I know a lot of people, uh, especially in the hunting community, actually support this idea of allowing uh, even hunters um, with you know, whether they're 12 gauge slugs uh, that don't travel very far or by archery um, to be harvesting uh, these deer, even if the hunters harvest it in and help get it into the food bank, they're doing it for free or whether it's a um, municipality led program that's paying for professionals to remove overpopulated deer uh, to go into uh, the food bank. So um, great step. Um, proactive step in New Brunswick. So that's pretty cool. I uh, would like to see that program kind of expand throughout Canada. What do you think? Do you think urban deer uh, should be hunted either by resident hunters or by professionals and that that meat get utilized um, for food banks in communities? Let me know. In Whistler, British Columbia, in the big resort community um, by the the ski hill, Whistler Ski, Whistler Blackcomb Ski Resort there outside of Vancouver. Uh, a homeowner there uh, was recently given a fine by a judge of $60,000 for feeding a black bear. That took place three summers ago. Uh, this person who owned a second home in Whistler, they were from Switzerland, I believe, was feeding a sow black bear and her cubs, uh, maybe some other bears. The story said that this person was purchasing bulk produce, including 10 cases of apples, 50 pounds of carrots, and up to 50 dozen eggs a week to feed these bears the bears become so habituated uh, in and around the residents and community of Whistler the BC conservation officer ended up doing an assessment determining that they presented a high risk um, to the public and the bear and the cubs were euthanized back in 2018 so I read another story that the Crown was trying to seek um, a settlement outside of court with this individual with a penalty of $10,000. The judge that ended up presiding over the case did not allow for the plea bargain outside of the courtroom, and this is how I understood it, sort of ensured that the the case came before the judge rather than than um, Crown Counsel uh, entering into a plea with the <clears throat> with the defendant for a lesser amount, and the judge imposed the highest possible penalty under British Columbia's Wildlife Act of sixty thousand dollars for feeding uh, a dangerous animal, which a black bear is considered a dangerous animal, and it is the highest total penalty imposed in the province under the Wildlife Life act uh, to date. So precedent setting case, the judge, I think, was probably 
pissed about all these stories and cases across British Columbia of people feeding bears and then these public controversies over bears having to be euthanized that the judge wanted to set a uh, record level precedent setting case to try to start curtailing people from not properly securing their attractants and habituating these bears which is putting people's lives at risk um, so Quite the story in British Columbia. $60,000 for feeding Boo Boo the bear. The lesson here, the moral of the story, crime doesn't pay. In this case, it paid $60,000 probably that are going to go to the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation to be put back into wildlife conservation projects. So <clears throat> maybe it paid in that respect. But for three bears, in this case crime didn't pay because they paid with their lives. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode.